Hello and welcome aboard the Gallant Says Podcast. I am Paul Gallant. Big thanks to everybody who has subscribed, rated, reviewed the podcast wherever you get them. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox. I don't even know what the hell that one is. YouTube as well. If you want to get in touch with the show, says at gmail.com is how you can send me an email. You can even leave a voicemail. You want to get real old-fashioned at 781-452-4322. Again, that's 781-452-4322. You can leave a comment on YouTube as well. We'll pick through them at the very end of the show when we get into mail. On today's show, November 16th, a Tuesday of 2021, we're going to take a look back at the Seahawks getting shut out off a bye on Sunday. Good God. Why did that happen? And how does this offense get any better? Plus, what do you think about Pete Carroll right now? Not his best look on Monday in a place that I used to know. And I will talk with my old Galant at Night radio producer, Ryan Rocket, the man who has made me somewhat aware of things in this world called music. We're going to talk about the tragedy at the Travis Scott concert uh, in Houston a couple of weeks ago and about Travis Scott, period. And I never thought that I would dive into politics on this podcast, but I'm going to do it some more. I can't believe what's actually getting me to take that dive into talking about the real world. So all of that and more, let's go. A radio show host in Seattle called Paul Gallant. I was just kind of curious what Paul gets to see. You are definitely living in the hindsight world today, Paul. I got mother Are you kidding me? Paul Gallant, what the hell is wrong with you? I guess a couple of days after that debacle, it's my time to sing songs of doom and gloom about the now 3-6 and six Seattle Seahawks who lost 17-0 to the Green Bay Packers on Sunday despite coming off of a bye week and having Russell Wilson finally back under center. Move the pin. Time to win. Okay, Russ. Sure, you were ready to go. Lots of doom and gloom out there. I'm not going to dance on top of it and add more shit to the shit pile. I'm just going to ask you this question, perhaps sound like a Seahawks honk while I do that. Seahonk, if you will. The season's not over. Yeah, they're 3-6. and six. Yeah, they're in last place in the NFC West. And that was their worst performance of the year. But there's still eight games left. And one game does not a season make. If one game made a season, then the Cardinals getting blitzed by the Panthers on Sunday would be something that we would say to ourselves means the Cardinals are absolute frauds, and I don't know that we would go that far. The Rams have played like crap under the lights the last two weeks against the Titans and against, now on Monday, the San Francisco 49ers. But we've also seen them beat the defending Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The 49ers have looked like shit a lot this year, but what they did to the Rams on Monday, whether it's just more of Kyle Shanahan being Sean McVay's daddy or something else, this is a league where there is parity. You're never 
the sum of your worst game. You're never the sum of your best game. And you're probably rolling your eyes right now and thinking to yourself, Jesus Christ, Paul, I don't need you to explain how the NFL works. Fine. All I am saying is with eight games left and those eight games coming against the Cardinals on Sunday, Washington football team, San Francisco, who you beat already this year, Houston, who is garbage, an L.A. team that seems to be in disarray, the Bears, the Lions, and Cardinals, you're telling me that they can't win the majority of those games. You're telling me that they can't win five, six of those games. I think six is definitely possible. They're going to need to win six, but six is definitely possible. And just think about who they're competing with for playoff spots. Maybe they won't need six because they're competing with the Saints. They lost a tiebreaker too. And the Vikings, so they lost a tiebreaker too. The Panthers, the Eagles, Falcons, and 49ers for probably two playoff spots with Dallas, Green Bay, Tampa Bay, Arizona, and L.A. Teams that right now look like they would have to have an epic collapse to miss the playoffs. That is possible. It's not ideal, obviously. But of all of those teams... They have the best quarterback. Plain and simple, end of story. And while Russell Wilson did not look good on Sunday, again, he looked like shit. I feel like by the end of the year, you should, in principle, see a better offense. More on that in a little bit. The Seahawks defense is playing better. DJ Reed, Trey Brown are a nice corner combo. I like that Trey Brown's finally getting to start for this team. So, I mean, the season's not done, and... All of you naysayers and people that constantly act like the Seahawks are this stupid team live anywhere fucking else. Jesus. I was in Houston watching a real shit show for almost a decade. The Texans still suck. They're never going to be good again, probably. And you guys are acting like this is the end of the world. It's bad, definitely, but there are very few teams that I feel like deserve the kind of confidence, the benefit of the doubt to put something together and perhaps put themselves within striking distance of a playoff spot by the end of the year. Still eight games left. But now, we get back to what took place on Sunday. They blew an opportunity. I mean, they held the Packers to 17 points on the road, despite Green Bay having the ball for nearly 40 minutes. That defensive performance was really good. I mean, Jamal Adams, that was his best game of the season. He was awesome. All over the field, making plays when he needed to. Bobby Wagner, not so much. I liked what I saw out of Jordan Brooks, though. But they had opportunities as well that the Packers gave them. A missed 41-yard field goal early on. A fourth down stop in the second quarter that the Seahawks had. A three and out by the Packers to open the second half. Aaron Rodgers throwing an end zone interception to Jamal Adams of all people. They gave you chance after chance after chance with Aaron Rodgers essentially just showing up for work for the first time after getting the Rona and all the distractions that might have been attached to that leading into the week. Aaron Jones got hurt in the game. Rashawn Gary on defense for the Packers got hurt too. And the ultimate thing is that the Seahawks were coming off of a bye and Russ was healthy. How many more opportunities are you going to have presented to you like that when you are playing a team like Green Bay on the road? You got to take advantage of that. There's no excuses for that. Oh, D. Eskridge is hurt. Oh, Chris Carson's hurt. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Dwayne Brown got hurt in the middle of this game. Fuck the excuses. I mean, you, you had an opportunity here. Are you going to get opportunities like that against all the good teams you play the rest of the way? Two games against the Cardinals, one against L.A.? I mean, Matt Stafford might give you a bunch, but you're only playing L.A. once more the rest of the year. And there's a chance Stafford pulls himself out of the slump by then. 
The Cardinals with Cliff Kingsbury, I feel like you have a pretty good chance of at least splitting those two games that you have left with them. But when things are gift-wrapped for you and you score zero fucking points, that is a problem, obviously. And it's even worse when you're giving chance after chance after chance. Speaking of chances, the Seahawks offense doesn't have one right now. Not my best transition. We'll work on it. And I hope the Seahawks offense is working on anything. Since the Vikings game, here's what has happened on every single offensive possession that they've had. 20 punts, but they're a kicking team. It's fine. Seven touchdowns, three interceptions, five end of half or end of games, one field goal, two missed field goals, and three turnovers on downs. Yikes. I mean, we're talking about an offense that has DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. When he's healthy, Chris Carson. Pretty good tight end core in both Gerald Everett and Will Disley. What happened on Sunday, though? Green Bay's defense is above average. 11th per DVOA, if you want to keep making excuses for them. Russ might not have been healthy. He said his... Finger was fine after the game, though, so aren't we to take him at his word? After all, he basically announced that he was back on Twitter. No pin, time to win. D. Eskridge, he's barely played. Dwayne Brown got hurt with a hip strain in this game. He was replaced by Jamarco Jones. I mean, you can throw all sorts of excuses out there, but the big problem is This offense isn't better than they were last year, and they should be. You're replacing the offensive coordinator. The offensive coordinator that you had last season is the reason that you went down in flames. But at the very least, in the first half of the year, things were working pretty well for Brian Schottenheimer and company. The hell's going on with Waldron? And I just wonder about his grasp on a game. And I'd specifically point to something that I thought the Seahawks got away from last year. Remember, this was a team that in the last eight games of the year was throwing the ball twice as much as it was running it, at least per play calls. That's bad. You need to have some sort of balance in this league, especially down the stretch. And if you go back to this Seahawks loss to the Packers where they scored zero points you'd see that they threw the ball 40 times and that they ran it just 16 it's more of this two to one bullshit and the problem is they were averaging 4.7 yards a carry when they ran the ball making things even more strange Travis Homer was on the field more than Alex Collins, who I think has been a pretty nice little revelation for you, doing some of the things that he was doing in Baltimore a couple of years ago. But Travis Homer was on the field more than Alex Collins. Rashad Penny, time to throw it in the trash. I might be willing to admit now that he is a bust if he can't even see the field, along with LJ Collier, who's barely been active this season, whatever, that's first-round picks. I don't want to get sidetracked. you got to run the football more. And against Green Bay, they could have run the football more. And for whatever reason, they got into these certain moments where they just stopped and drive stalled. And then Russell Wilson did dumb things. 
He had a couple of interceptions in this game. Neither of them were smart passes. He could have had another one as well later on. What's better on the offense this year? How is it improving? Pete Carroll teams improve over the course of the year. The defense is better. But what the fuck's going on with the offense? Damian Lewis, you move him to left guard, he's getting pancaked and holding people at the same time? I'm looking for something here to say, yes, this is getting better. There's nothing. And you can make those excuses for Shane Waldron, but ultimately, he's got to make it work. He's not, and this is looking like a misfire in hiring him. Why are we to believe that things are going to change in the second half of the year when, for the most part, this offense has been bad? With or without Russell Wilson. So if Russ isn't the quick, the quick fixer upper, even if he's banged up in this game against Green Bay, I mean, he's, he, he clearly was not himself. But he's back out there. You should be able to do more things. You should at the very least have defenses scared you can do more things. And you did nothing. Goose egg. In 2021, that is hard to do, especially when your quarterback's good. Pete Carroll is a good, eh? Coach when things are going well. We've seen that from his time with the Seahawks. We have seen that from his time at USC. But I'm concerned about Pete Carroll as a coach in times of crisis. And that's where the Seahawks are right now. Especially considering that Pete Carroll, even though he is perhaps the most energetic 70-year-old you'll ever see, he's getting up there in age. You got players getting younger and younger. And you've probably got some others who have been in the locker room for a really long time that are wondering if things could be better. This is, I think, a natural thing that happens in relationships. It is a natural thing that happens for players across all sports. Could our coach, could our manager be better? Is there something that he's not doing that I see elsewhere that could be done better? This is not me asking for Pete Carroll to be fired. I'm just concerned that he's going to be able to get this thing back on track when it is possible to get it back on track. He has done it before. He did it his first season with the Seahawks. They started off two and six, and then they win five of six. All of a sudden, they're seven and seven. They lose the last two. They finish seven and nine in 2010, but there's no Russell Wilson that year. Without Russ, this year, it's been the same. He hasn't been able to keep them afloat. And I think it's unfair to expect a head coach to keep a team afloat when its star quarterback goes down. Some teams are able to make it happen for one week or a couple of weeks or something like that. The Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl of 2017 are the obvious example. Nick Foles is not that good of a quarterback, no matter what Philadelphians will tell you. I'm not sure how much they know about quarterbacks, given that the best quarterback in their city's history is Donovan McNabb, and they hate him. That's neither here nor there. Pete Carroll, going back to what I was talking about, though, at his time at USC, his time with the Seahawks, I think he's great at managing personalities when things are going great, sort of as if he is the chief of a Viking raiding party that is consistently going from town to town and ransacking the villages. And that's what you have with the Legion of Boom days. Or maybe you want to call them pirates or something like that. But when things have gone south for Pete Carroll in the past, I was there firsthand. You might see this shirt. 
Patriot shirt. I'm a Patriots fan. What's up, Mac Jones? Things are looking pretty good for them, but that's not what you want to hear about. Pete Carroll coached the New England Patriots from 1997 through 1999. I remember those years vividly. I was but a pup, but I was a NFL-obsessed pup that would be getting, getting triviaed by his... Is that a verb? Whatever. I was getting quizzed by some of my best friend's parents about things that were sports, and I would consistently get all these things right. Maybe I'm making a bigger deal of it and being nostalgic and acting as if I knew more back then, but I knew a lot about football when I was a little kid. That was all I cared about. And I remembered listening to sports radio and just hearing about a Patriots team that had been coached by a hard-ass in Bill Parcells in 1996, shifting over to Pete Carroll in 1997. A lot of the holdovers from that 1996 team would stick with the Patriots through their early 2000s Super Bowl run when Bill Belichick came back in more of a hard ass and, of course, had been with that New England Patriots team in 1996. When Pete came into New England, he had an uphill battle. So I'm going to make some excuses for him for why it didn't work out. A bad front office that let a future Hall of Fame running back walk out after his first year in charge. Curtis Martin. They thought they could replace him. I would say this to anybody who thinks that running backs grow on trees in the middle of the draft. If you find one, good luck fucking finding another. And that's what the Patriots thought they were going to be able to do. They actually told Pete Carroll that. They said, yeah, we can find Curtis Martin in the third round again. Nope, they didn't. They found Robert Edwards, who was good for a year, but he tore his ACL. At the end of the 1998 to 1999 season, Drew Bledsoe banged up his finger. He was the starting quarterback for New England for all those Cougs fans out there. Was up? And everything started to fall apart down the stretch, specifically in the last game of the year. They made the playoffs, but the regular season finale, they lost 31-10 to the eventual AFC East champion, New York Jets. And after that game, Chris Slade, a Patriots linebacker, said that they were outcoached, outplayed in that one. And it made it seem like the Pete Carroll era was on the ropes, even if it had been, to that point, one that led to Two playoff appearances, one AFC East crown. Now they apologized and made up afterwards, but that moment lingered. There was an interesting quote by Chad Eaton, a former Patriots defensive tackle, Puyallup native, after that game. You might not you might be surprised to hear that a lot of guys respect Pete because people were coming after him in Boston sports media. It's a bunch of jackals up there. I hear stuff about Pete losing the team and so on. It's crazy. Guys do respect him. I just think guys aren't used to having a coach who gives them respect and the kind of leeway that mature football players should be able to handle. We have the freedom to do what we want. Some guys respond. Other guys take advantage of it. And the next season, 1999, those New England Patriots, they started off 6-2, and two, but all of a sudden they go through a losing streak and it went down the toilet really quickly. And thinking about all those moments just make me wonder about Pete Carroll during a time like this and if he's going to be able to pull the plane up from a nosedive. This is written by Bill Simmons about the Pete Carroll era in New England. Good-natured, upbeat San Fran assistant Pete Carroll was the classic case of a player's coach replacing a disciplinarian. Within months, players were diving into mosh pits. You don't have any of that going on with the Seahawks. Missing practices, getting into car accidents and fist fights. Even though they were a consensus Super Bowl contender, the Patriots kept making mistakes in big moments and Pete Carroll's goofy, I'm jacked and pumped routine was bordering on SNL sketch territory. This is a Bill Simmons piece, by the way. One of my readers at the time joked, the Pete Carroll era finally answers the question of why Fredo was never given control of the Corleone family. But things have changed. Pete Carroll at USC with the Seahawks showed that that style does work. But does it work during times of crisis? 
Is he a wartime consigliere? Is he Robert Baratheon? Is he somebody that can step in when things hit the fan and drag everyone behind him and get everyone back in line? And I wonder about that because there are some signs of cracks. Look, there's a lot of second guessing going on about whether or not the Seahawks should have had Russell Wilson under Stenner instead of Geno Smith. And some people are thinking that the Seahawks would definitively have played better with Geno with Smith instead of Russ. That thought entered my head, but you don't start Geno Smith, who is not good, over any percentage of Russell Wilson. You just don't. You don't. Russell Wilson's a tough cookie. If he thinks he can play, he can play, even if he is a little bit insufferable about it during the week. But there's a part of me that's wondering... The same way that Bane wondered with one of those uh, two suits in The Dark Knight Rises. Do you feel in charge? Does Pete feel in charge of the Russell Wilson situation? Like he has command over it. Obviously, there was tension this offseason. There is tension going forward, given that this team is three and six. But it felt like he put a lot of pressure, Russell Wilson, on the Seahawks this week to get him back on the field. Maybe there were some conversations that took place behind the scenes, but no pin, time to win. That tweet with the, um, yeah, okay. (laughs) Trying to be like uh, a greeting card going forward from Hallmark. You know what I'm here for. He tweets out the video of him with the music, a banger song from... Succession, the TV show on HBO in the background. I mean, it felt like he was announcing he was back under center and sort of going over the Seahawks and doing it publicly. And I wouldn't have thought twice about that unless we saw this tweet from Geno Smith, who in the past has not exactly been the best teammate. Just ask um, those who played with him on the New York Jets about that time he got punched in the face, broke his jaw and lost his job to Ryan Fitzpatrick, who played pretty well. Geno Smith tweeted, I want to vent, but I know it ain't safe after the loss to the Packers. Then he deleted it. But it's out there. The internet is forever. Geno Smith has a dubious track record, but I do think that he is more liked in Seattle than he was in New York. And I'm sure that there are some teammates who felt the same way about Russell Wilson coming back on the field the way that he did. Look, Everyone knows Russell Wilson's a great quarterback. But he's also a guy that seems pretty isolated from his teammates. And when you're injured, too, you probably feel even more isolated from your teammates or your teammates feel more isolated from you. So he comes back in and is expecting, I think, everything to be what it had been over the last couple of weeks. But remember, Geno Smith played pretty well against the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Jaguars suck, but you can understand why Geno Smith would be a little frustrated with the way that things went. And it feels, on the outside looking in, like... Russ put all that stuff out there. The Seahawks made the decision, and maybe they didn't properly evaluate Russell Wilson as far as they needed to. So that makes me wonder about Pete Carroll during times of crisis. And then you have this. DK Metcalf getting ejected. Carlos Dunlap throwing a shoe. In one game, not necessarily a big deal. But as the season progresses, and if they lose games like this, how many more meltdowns are we going to see? DK Metcalf has a temper. But those two plays were fucking stupid. 
DK, yes, he gets into it with corners, and I love it when he gets into it with corners, but there's a certain point where he needs to press the eject button. And the Carlos Dunlap thrown shoe, I mean, what did he think was going to happen there? This isn't basketball. You know, it's not like he's, he's hiding the shoe from somebody who in the middle of action needs to go put it back on. It was a dick move, a dumb move. These are two small examples, but if the season continues to have moments of, let's face it, embarrassment, these players who have pride are going to get pissed off and potentially do more things like this. And Pete Carroll's not the kind of guy who's going to, I think, yell at them and say, what, like, oh my God, this is a terrible thing. You know, he's not a hard ass. But if you don't like come down hard, crack hard, when some guys are doing this, even if they apologize afterwards, this small incident, these two small incidents will become more and more prevalent. And here's what I hated the most about Pete Carroll after this loss to the Green Bay Packers. On the um, on 710, on the Mike Salk show, by the way, Mike and I are cool, for those who wondered, we had a conversation a couple of uh, weeks ago. Seriously, we're fine. I have no bad blood back towards uh, the old station. But um, on the Pete Carroll show, Pete went on a tangent about how the referees affected the game. Which is fine. The refs were not very good in this game. But you scored zero fucking points. There was a poster in my high school football gym locker room where it said, excuses, hint of a reason stuffed with a lie. And when you score zero points, I don't want to hear your excuses. I don't. Sure, Daryl Taylor definitely recovered that fumble. 100% did. They challenged it. It wasn't overturned. Something that I have learned over my time watching the NFL is that generally, spot of ball foul, or excuse me, spot of ball foul, what the hell does that mean? Spot of ball and fumbles never get overturned in terms of fumble actual recoveries. They will almost always go with the ruling on the field and never overturn it, which is frustrating because I feel like those are two plays that sometimes are so bang, bang of a player, excuse me, if a coach is willing to throw the red challenge flag on it, why not take a second look at it? And I feel like they don't do it as honestly as they should give it that second look. Oh, not conclusive enough evidence. Eh. Dunlap, excuse me, uh, um, Daryl Taylor clearly had more control of the football than Aaron Rodgers. Ty goes to the quarter to the uh, offensive player, fine, but I mean, Rodgers did not look like he had control of that in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't close to his body. He had a big guy with the ball, and he's trying to reach it, pull it out. Other calls that Pete Carroll brought up. Russ intercepted third and 10 from the 12 by Kevin King in the end zone. He lost the ball when it hit the ground. But, all right, next play, it's going to be 4th and 10 from the 12. You kick a field goal? You had to score touchdowns there. Russ made a stupid throw. It got intercepted. And right now, with the way that the NFL catch rule has gone, I can understand why that wasn't a catch. But with the way things have gone, where now you're seeing guys catch a football and then take two, three steps and fumble afterwards, and they're calling it a fumble... It's always going to be hard to get the 100% right call. What's not hard is avoiding dumb fucking mistakes, and that was a dumb throw by Russ. Both of his end zone interceptions were poor choices. And then the last thing that PKL brought up, which 
It's a fair gripe. On their opening drive, Russell Wilson scrambles for a first down. At least we thought. They moved the chains. I honestly thought he was short, and I was surprised by the spot that they gave him. 20 seconds later, all of a sudden, though, it's fourth and one. And I guess the entire saga kind of confused the Seahawks. They had started the play clock. Pete Carroll said he would have gone for it had the play clock not started. Well, why, why not just challenge that one? Or why not call a timeout? First half timeouts don't matter at all. Yes, blowing your two challenges early in a game, that could come back to hurt you. But first half timeouts to me are not important, at least compared to second half timeouts. If you want to go for it on fourth and one on your own 41, call the timeout. And if you're thinking about it, sometimes you got to go away from this thing that you've turned into a brand, being a kicking team, and be unconventional, at least compared to the ways that you normally do things. And they didn't there. They should have called a timeout. I wonder about Pete Carroll in times of crisis. His track record in New England is not very good. And when you're bringing up things like the referees as a reason for why you lost the game 17-0, you scored zero points. If I'm in that locker room, I'm not feeling like Pete Carroll's in command the way that he needs to be. We're going to shake things up here for a second. When I was hosting the Galan at Night radio show in Houston, I had Ryan Rocket as a producer. Ryan Rocket tried his best to make me less musically challenged. I thought it would be a great time to bring him on, given what took place in Houston a couple of weeks ago, the tragedy at the Travis Scott concert. Here's Rocket. Joining me right now on the Gallant Says podcast is an old friend. He was my producer for the Gallant at Night radio program, kept me on track, kept me from going down too far and all those ADD rabbit holes that I might. And honestly, I think just setting me straight often. And now he hosts the Gems and Juice podcast with our other buddy, Figgy, the one, the only, Ryan Rocket. Rocket, what's going on, bud? Not a whole lot, man. Glad to see you again. Glad to see you in, in good health, man. It's been a minute since we really talk, chopped it up and talked. So really glad to be here, man. Glad to be back with you. I really love, like, like I told you plenty of times before, man, the times I worked with you on radio was the best time I ever had in radio. So a part of me still does miss the Galan at night with Ryan Rocket producing, but you know, life goes on, but good to be back, man. Good to talk to you again. I'm enjoying it. Never had more fun doing radio than I, when I did it with you too. Those <laughs> were a very fun, what was it like a year? Jeez, it went by. Yeah, something like that. But it's, I still have the pictures of you when you met because I brought for people who didn't listen or didn't uh, didn't remember. Uh, I, I my my goal for a while was to educate you on Houston rap because you didn't know something about. I think it was Pimp C or UGK. It, so. it started off with me not knowing anything about break dancing, and I tried to <laughs> yes, that's right, you. that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know what break dancing was so and then that spun off into you not knowing about rap so i tried to educate you i brought some rappers you met Lil flip you met uh i think it was esg slim thug mm -hmm. you met a bunch of legends man so i still have those pictures of you in slim thug it's so random but <laughs> i still have those man so here's this like exceptionally pasty white guy with two people <laughs> who are really really cool rocket was the cool part of the show and i was just like ah. so this guy plays the music i hate to sort of transition into a, a sad topic but 
I saw this take place late on Friday night. I was talking with a bunch of people that I went to a festival in Las Vegas with. And all of a sudden, this news broke out that there was just an absolute tragedy at the Travis Scott concert on November 5th, where at least nine are dead as of now. I don't know if there's any more that are coming out of it. Travis Scott is a rapper that I do know about. You know, that's, that's what, I know that song and I know some yeah. other ones. And it has me thinking about him and his place, first off, just in the music industry, but also in the Houston rap scene. This is a guy who I guess Rocket has had a bunch of concerts where shit gets out of hand pretty quickly. And this isn't just like a one-time thing. There's a guy who got paralyzed in 2017. Uh, one of my friends went to a concert in 2018 and he was like, yeah, this was pretty mosh pity very quickly. Why for a guy that has a genre of music that at least based off of my ears is, you know, more chill, I would think than aggressive. How has it turned into some sort of like 1980s punk rock where all of a sudden you have crowds that end up like this? Well, to be honest, man, like the rappers of today are the rock stars of the earlier days. You know, there, there's really no more rock music as in uh, how we would define it back then. So all that energy has kind of gone to rap now. A lot of people who probably would be rock stars are kind of rapping now. Like Machine Gun Kelly was a guy. He's getting into more into rock music now, but he started off as a rapper. Post Malone, these people normally probably wouldn't be rappers, but now that's like the new the new rock and roll kind of man. And Travis Scott's music is, is not necessarily like, you know, Onyx and Public Enemy like or NWA type super hype, but it's still very energetic, especially in a live setting. You know, he has some songs where it's just, you know, the, the vibe is just very high energy. And to be honest, he kind of cultivates that. I'm sure people have seen the now deleted tweets where he's kind of, you know, encouraging some things that look very bad in retrospect about jumping barricades and people getting hurt and, and kind of bragging about that. So it looks pretty bad in hindsight, but I don't, I don't know, man. It's hard to explain. His, his, his fan base is called the Ragers. You know, he calls them that. And like he, he, he does enjoy that hype atmosphere he likes the mosh pit a lot of rappers do now but he likes the mosh pit environment you know that that gets some hype and the fans you know of course they love that too uh but it was just really unfortunate man i i think oh and the the, the blame kind of goes around i i don't i can't it's hard for me to just blame Travis scott i understand why some people feel like that but the, the blame is is far more widespread than just Travis Scott and his music, but it is a part of it. I can't deny that. Some of the blame could go to police officers. They were radioing about crushing type injuries pretty early on in this concert. You could also point some at Travis Scott because it took him a while to figure out what was going on there. You know, there's a lot of just really sad videos out there. People jumping up on stage, shaking cameramen, yelling. And of course we've seen the videos of people just getting squished out there and it's absolutely terrible. And he is a, rapper that has really, I, I think, come to be a symbol of Houston rap. I know someone that you had made me aware of, Megan The Stallion also is, is, is sort of at the forefront of that. H how did he get to being that guy? Because, and this is, this is a text from my buddy, Kyle, 
<laughs> and Kyle told me that, hang on a second, the OGs of Houston hip hop, Ron Seach, Millionaire, Bun B, these are guys. Millionaire. Did yeah, I say it wrong? Yeah. He said show yeah. millionaire is come Show millionaire. <laughs> See, we're on brand still. So uh, he said that those guys kind of claimed Houston from the jump. And Travis Scott has claimed Houston clearly as of late, but he's not, I guess, really Houston to the bone, if that makes sense. No, not really, man. And to say he's a Houston rapper technically is true. I mean, he does have, of course, the elements he calls his festival Astro World. I'm sure that name is done now. But he called his his festival Astro World. He had the whole rodeo motif in the past as well. Of course, from the Houston rodeo, he's from Houston, but his sound is not necessarily Houston influenced in a way. I, I guess you can argue the the slow down nature at times is more of a DJ screw type, you know, chopped and screwed. But he really is more modeled after like a Kanye West and a Kid Cudi type of sound. He kind of came up under their umbrella. And that's really how he got on the national stage. It wasn't just through Houston. There are people in Houston that mess with Travis Scott. Don't get me wrong. But he's not really seen in that Bun B, Chameleonaire, you know, UGK. Zero, Scarface. He's not seen as one of those, you know, type of Houston rappers. He's more of a, a a national sensation that claims Houston, but is not really, you know, Houston born and bred in terms of the sound. So, so is he low key a fraud for claiming Houston the way that he claims now? And this is something else that, again, I don't really know a whole lot about, but I guess he's someone that was doing like musical theater in high school. And look, you make money how you make money. You create mm -hmm. a genre of music how you create a genre of music. But I kind of do get the vibes of <laughs> this is a guy that is very different than the guy that he used to be and is perhaps drawing from something that's not his actual experience, if that makes sense. It does. And look, I, I got to be honest, man. The nerves have taken over everything in this world. <laughs> okay. I got to be real. They've taken over sports. They've taken over music and they've taken over rap, too. You know, Drake is another one of those guys, you know, Drake is one of the is the biggest, probably the definitely the biggest rapper, one of the biggest music stars in the world today. He came up off of, you know, a, a Nickelodeon TV show in Canada. You know, he definitely did not fit the stereotypical image of a rapper when he came out. And now he's the biggest rapper out. There is definitely a lot of nerves in hip hop. Like, I got to be honest, Travis Scott, from what I've heard, he did not. I mean, he did not grow up in. I'm not going to say you had to grow up in poverty to be a rapper, but he grew up in Missouri city in the suburbs. It's not like he, I know that's a little fancy. Yeah. He is not, I don't want to perpetuate a stereotype. Like you got to be from the hood and the struggle to be a rapper. You definitely don't, but he is not like, you know, he, he came from a good home apparently. And he, you know, he, he did not fit the, whatever the stereotypical image of a rapper was. I, I don't know if I would say he's a fraud because, you know, he could easily claim another city like Atlanta if he wanted to or anywhere else. You know, it wasn't super popular when he was doing it to say Houston everything, you know, because Houston music, I got to be honest, on a national level, it kind of fell off for, for a little bit because Atlanta had taken over everything. 
everything was about Atlanta and Atlanta sound and everybody, even Houston rappers we've had on our podcast talked about how they felt like if you want to make it as a rapper, you need to go to Atlanta and not just be all about Houston because Houston artists are kind of, you know, shady and shysty and all that. So, I mean, he did claim Houston when he didn't have to. He did have a, he's done a lot of work in the community. You have to bring that up as well. And that's before all this happened. It's not like some makeup for the tragedy. He's been doing a lot of community work in Houston. I think he does love and care about Houston organically and naturally. It's not just some kind of, you know, act he's putting on. So, yeah, I can't say he's a fraud about it, but I will say I don't think uh, the Houston, when you name Houston rap legends, Travis Scott is kind of like the outsider in that conversation. Even though he's one of the biggest technically Houston rappers, he's an outsider in terms of when you mention all the Houston rap legends, if that makes any sense. Okay. Are, are you a fan of him? Uh, I don't know if I would say I'm a fan. And let's remove what just happened too. Because yeah, of course, the, the knives, of course. The knives are all out right now. I, I totally understand the people coming after him. I mean, what happened is fucked up and it seems like yeah. it's a recurring thing. But this is obviously not something that he wanted, and I'm sure that he feels like shit about it. Um, but just exclusive of that, what do you think about him? I enjoy his music, man. I have to say I do. I enjoy his music. I'm not as into it. Like, we have a lady on the podcast. Her name is Jasmine. She's a super hardcore Chapit Scott fan. At least she was. I know she went to the festival, and she's going through some yeah. things. She's Yeah, she's having a tough time about it. That sucks. Yeah. But uh, before all this, she was a huge Chapman Scott fan. Um, there, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan per se. Like I'm not eagerly anticipating when he drops new music, but I do enjoy his music. I do see the appeal of it. And I do understand how in an environment, it'll get you hyped up. You know, they play it all over sports arenas, basketball games, football yeah. games. They play Chapman Scott everywhere. Yeah. So uh, you, you could tell it has, and I see why. I see, I get why people love them. I just don't love them like that per se, but I understand the appeal. Okay. Our, we're both getting to the point where we could be called old, and usually you get set into <laughs> your musical taste at a certain age, right? Yeah. How open have you been as you get older and older to some of the new music that's coming out? Because you were talking about it just a moment ago. The nerds have taken over the game. You ain't kidding. I mean, it's fucking obnoxious <laughs> in sports. Holy shit. Like, how, how many times do I have to deal with this? And, and no offense to the people of Seattle. I love you, Seattle. But <laughs> you guys take it to a new degree. Like, I, I never experienced anything like this in Houston with some of the some of the real smart people that are coming out and talking about sports on Twitter. It, it, it's, it's definitely changed. So how, how open, I guess, are you to all the new things that are popping up? I try to be, man. Like I, I try to be, I, I'm not fully on the porch shaking my cane at the kids to get <laughs> off my yard, my yard yet. I'm getting there, but I'm not there yet. Honestly, the podcast we do gems and juice helps a lot because we have a lot of young artists come on that podcast and, you know, it makes us listen to their music. It gives you, you know, a chance to listen to something new. And I'm like, wow, this is actually really good, man. I get it. I try to listen to the, the major new releases. I give everything a chance. That's my my number one goal. Give it a chance before you hate. You know, it's so easy to say that sucks, it's trash, it's whack. It was better back in my day. You got to give things a chance. You have to at least listen with an open mind. If it's not for you, it's not for you. But my number one goal is to just give everything a chance before I make an opinion. 
And sometimes it's hard because some people just look so whack and sound so whack. <laughs> I got to listen to a whole project before I make my decision on how I feel about you. And I'm, I'm glad because this is something that you actually instilled in me where now I am really open to just about everything, including country, which I never thought <laughs> I would say. But now that you mentioned who's whack, who's the wackest, who's the absolute worst right now, oh, current man. like famous person who just you think, and again, it's your opinion, but you got to stand by it, who you're just like, Jesus, this guy. <laughs> or famous now, person um you mean like musician or yeah anybody? any 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 musician uh, oh man i could i'm not a fan of little baby i gotta say a lot of people love little baby you know uh, he's I, not I'm just the not, baby they're two, two not, yeah that's two different, different guys the, the baby, baby got not, no relation right okay baby, <laughs> so little baby is another rapper i'm not a huge fan of him man i've given him a chance i've listened to a bunch of projects i'm just it's not for me, man. I, I don't see the appeal of it. Uh, there's some other ones. I forget their names now, but some people, Trippy Red, I'm kind of coming around to. I hated him at first, but I'm kind of coming around to him. I do see he is kind of talented. Uh, but just some people, oh, yeah, there's that guy who, Nardo Wick, he has a huge song out now. Um, it's a song, if you watch that Saints video of, uh, the uh, uh after the game when J Jameis Winston got hurt for the entire season and he got knocked out but there was a, a locker room video of the Saints in the Instagram live dancing to a song that song's by Nardo Wick and I'm not a fan of him like that song is hard but he's the the mumbling on him is just too much to bear I can't take it I'm not a fan of him he's kind of whack to me but I don't know that, there, there's a few started. others did that, that genre, did that all start with Future? Is he the guy who started the mumble, I guess, era? Or was there someone before? And I actually like Future. Yeah, I remember one too. time I went to Atlanta. Uh, we went to the Krog Street Bridge and I went back to my friend's house and we may or may not have partaken in things. And he just played Mask <laughs> Off on repeat. To a point where eventually <laughs> I had no choice but to like it because I heard it so many times. And now it's one of yep. my favorite rap songs. Uh, yeah, he's one of the uh, originators of the mumble style, I guess you could call it. Uh, the Migos were the first people I heard people call mumble rappers. And I didn't even think they mumbled that much. Like you can hear what they're saying, but it was very, very low, low key, low. You know, they're, they're not screaming or shouting or really even being loud. They're kind of at the same even tone when they rap. And that's when I started hearing people get called mumble rappers. People call a little Uzi Vert a mumble rapper. Like anybody who keeps the same even keel, low toned rap flow is called a mumble rapper. Future, he has some songs where he's legit just mumbling and you can't hear what he's saying. Like you have no idea what the lyrics are unless you looked it up on Rap Genius. So he, he's definitely one of the mumble people, but I don't know if he originated the style. I think it had been around a little bit before him. This guy knows everything about music and you got to check out the gems and juice podcast with figgy with Jasmine as well. You guys had on Mark Ingram recently. Yes. After he got his ass out of Houston. Good for him. <laughs> the Texans suck. <laughs> Holy crap. That's the most yes. Texans I'm going to talk on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> in the near future. Uh, you have, you've had Arian Foster on before. Like yes. you guys have brought in a bunch of really cool guests and it's a, it's a really fun listen. I encourage everyone to check it out. I appreciate it, man. We got, we got bigger and better things planned out, you know, for next year as well. So, you know, appreciate all the love. We try to be, you know, 
because me and Figgy both work in sports. So we talk about sports, but our real passion is talking about music and culture stuff as well. We try to keep it even because we know a lot of people from our the radio listen to the podcast as well. So I see your cat in the background, by the way. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She's hanging out. Aria, yeah. Yeah. what's up? <laughs> but yeah, uh, so we try to have a, uh, uh, you know, whoever we can get. And, and, you know, a lot of people are very accessible. That Mark Ingram interview was great. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of time. It was the middle of the NFL season, but he still made time for us, man. That's he cool. was hilarious. So, yeah, check it out. Make sure you subscribe. You know, check it out. You know, check it. Ch- just listen to one episode. Like I yes. said, before you make a judgment, listen, listen once. If you don't like it, it ain't for you. That's cool. But give it a chance. If there's one episode that they should listen to, what's the episode they should listen to? Oh, man. Oh, I really liked your interview with Arian Foster. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. The Arian Foster interview. They, well, we have a sound on our SoundCloud page. We have a few of the highlight tracks or the highlight episodes. Uh, but the one with uh, Dende, Dende is a cool uh, Houston rapper as well. He's very funny. Uh, that was a good one, too. Is that a Dragon Ball Z inspired name? Yes, it is. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. I know some yeah. culture. <laughs> it's funny because I asked him about that because you know I'm a Dragon Ball head too, but Figgy had no idea what Dragon Ball was. He's like, oh god, what? that's been hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Dende was cool. Aaron Fox, definitely check that out. We've had a few episodes with some rap legends. Fat Tony was a good episode as well. Our last uh, Gender Juice we had in studio before the pandemic was with Fat Tony, great rapper from Houston. Uh, some legends like Will Lean and uh, PSK. We had, we had a few people on, man. So definitely check those out. You get a chance. Might learn a little something about rap history. So, yeah. This guy's a master of teaching that stuff. It's on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes. It's on all the apps that you can get it. Gems and Juice. He is Ryan Rocket. He's one of my best friends in this industry, dude. Appreciate you joining me so much. This was fun. Let's do it again soon. Oh, for sure, man. Anytime. Just hit me up. My team's the Republican team. Go team. My team's the liberal team. Go liberals. I had myself a very interesting Friday night online and then on Saturday too. And it's all because of some hookers outside of a Chick-fil-A. No, not like that. But I saw some people of the night standing outside of a Chick-fil-A. No judgment whatsoever. If you got to do that to pay the bills, do what you got to do. No judgments. If you're forced out there, that's another story entirely, but I don't want to dive down that rabbit hole because I don't know any of those people's stories out there. What I do know is I was, I'm not sure if I was impressed or shocked or what by just how bold and brazen they were. I mean, they clearly weren't trying to hide. They're right outside the exit to Chick-fil-A, a family establishment. And I guess that's something that's been going on on Aurora in Seattle for a really long time. Someone tweeted at me since the 1980s, which is a really, really long time. I tweeted about it as an observation, mainly because I was just impressed by the brazen, bold nature with which they were making themselves available, if you will. And I thought nothing of it. But I wake up the next day and I got this tweet from somebody who I don't want you to direct mean things towards. I'm not even going to read the person's handle. So much to unpack here. Seattleites say sex work is work. Don't assume you know their stories. Okay. You eat at Chick-fil-A? No wonder you have had trouble fitting in here. 
I say these things not to shame you, but to point out that this definitely isn't Texas. First off, I'm not from Texas. I'm from Boston. I've lived all over the country. I've lived in a bunch of different places. And I got to be perfectly honest, while I do like a lot of things about Seattle, this is the one that has probably made the least amount of sense to me. I don't know why saying this definitely isn't Texas is relevant here. And honestly, yeah, you might not be trying to shame me, but you're definitely pulling the exact thing that I hate the most about some from Seattle, being passive aggressive. Just be fucking aggressive. Come at me instead of talking around it because this was a very condescending response. And specifically that second part, which triggered me, not going to lie. You eat at Chick-fil-A. No wonder you have had trouble fitting in here. What the fuck does that mean? Because I eat at a fast food restaurant that my moral character is something that isn't compatible with this city. Fuck that and fuck off. That was my initial reaction to it. But I don't tweet these things out online because I don't want to seem like the crazy unhinged person that I am on the air on the Internet. I do want people to think I'm smart, at least temporarily. So I retweeted this sarcastically saying breaking. It didn't work out for me here in Seattle because I enjoy Chick-fil-A, but I followed up with, for a city that can be quite empathetic, there sure is a lot of broad brush painting here. Assuming anything about anyone, because they go to a fast food joint, one that happens to have the best customer service, one that I, for five years, had a car to where I could get one meal a day free, I like Chick-fil-A a lot. And I know that they have some political stances and fun things that you might not approve of. Some of you might approve of it. I don't give a shit. They're a fucking chicken sandwich company. I don't care about their politics. Does that make me perhaps a lesser person? I don't know, but clearly based off of this person, yes. Here are my thoughts on just boycotts in general. I think when you're doing it against a large corporation, it's largely pointless. You are not going to do anything that affects them. You're not going to annoy them. You're not going to even scrape their wallet. It is a pointless endeavor. And I'm a cynical skeptic. So that's just my opinion on the matter. But everyone is totally entitled to boycott a corporation for political stances. My big problem is, though, you got to draw the line somewhere, right? And I'll just point at China. I think China's government is evil. China's government has killed more people over the last 100 years than any organization in the world. Fact. We don't even know about half of them. But go look up Mao Zedong. Go look up the Chinese revolution. That is an evil government. Totalitarian. Keeping its people in the dark. Maybe not to the degree that North Korea does. Imperial over the entirety of Southeast Asia. They are evil. As a government. They are the antithesis of everything that we hope our country stands for. You need more proof of it. I'm not going to talk about some of the things that they do, like just typical communist stuff. They have fucking concentration camps. The Uyghurs are a at the group of Muslims living in China, and they are in concentration camps, many of whom are being sterilized. So I bring up China to, to say this, which is, you know, something that a lot of people would probably be annoyed by. Oh, what about China? Oh, it's the constant go-to. Well, if you really want to take a moral stand, 
then don't we, I don't know, stop using these or all of the many things that are produced for us in China? Problem is, it's going to turn out to be just about everything. So I bring that up not to say that you can't boycott things. Some people are going to have really strong, specific beliefs on one thing. And they're going to want to do anything that they can to change that one thing. But you can't judge other people for not having the same belief as you. And this is across both political spectrums, too. This is the right. This is the left. There is too much of this shit now. We have people on the left or the right who will fixate on one thing that the left is not that into or the right is not that into and it will paint with this broad brush as if everyone in that party is the exact same way and is evil every single person in this country should be allowed to have different personal political beliefs on all matters and they should not have to jump on the left or the right and be with that team until they die with things that they might disagree on It's the best part about this country. You can have so many different opinions about things. And again, I don't have any problem with people that boycott things. But if you're going to fucking judge somebody because they're not willing to boycott something like you. Where do you get off? You're going to judge them because of that. First off, they might not be aware of the very thing that you take issue with. And I think that for Chick-fil-A, it's that they uh, fund a bunch of um, anti-gay packs and things like that. I'll be honest. I don't know the specifics of it, but I know that's always been in the conversation with Chick-fil-A. It's why you see on this graphic right here uh, some protesters outside of a Chick-fil-A. I don't like that we have so many who are so quick to judge. I was not, I am not, check that. I was raised Catholic. I was very religious for a while. I am no longer religious. I hope there's a higher power. Maybe we can have a religion podcast someday. But I was raised with the understanding that Jesus, who, no matter how you feel about him, he was a righteous dude, didn't judge anybody. Let he who hath not sinned cast the first stone. I don't like that we're so quick to judge people for small, minor differences of opinion. And look, for some person, what Chick-fil-A does, that's not small, that's not minor. But to me, to judge me, my character, or anyone's character, because they go to a fast food place, is fucking ridiculous. And we need to stop this. And I want to talk more about some of these things that get us so divisive in a slightly less sweary, intelligent way, eloquent way, but... Since I have moved here, I will say one of the things that I have become a lot more passionate about are politics and some of the crazy things that are taking place these days and the lack of any discourse that we can have about them. We should be able to civilly disagree about these things, to have conversations. And you know what else? To change opinions. Sometimes you hear something and it's going to make you think differently. You should be allowed to change your opinion. Why do you need to be stubborn and dig in? In sports radio, I've been told before, yeah, you should, you know, be stubborn and and make sure you stand by this take forever. No, fuck that. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I think I'm wrong, I think I'm wrong. 
evolve, change, adapt. We're not doing that. We're going back in time. That tweet pissed me off, as you can tell. And I'll just say this going forward. If you're on the right, you're on the left. The broad brush painting of somebody because of one small part of who they are or what they do, it's got to stop. So that's my test for you for the day. Please do that. Thank you. Thank you very much to everybody who tuned in to a late posted episode of the Gallant Says Podcast. We do this thing two times a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. A big thanks to Ryan Rocket who stopped by. And a big thanks to you if you've subscribed to the podcast, if you've rated the podcast, which you can do on Apple Podcasts. We've got a couple of reviews here from, I can't read this, is Julia yours? Best podcast about 3D puzzles by Canadian entrepreneur and Houston Texan fan, Paul Gallant. Did you know that there is a famous, um, I guess someone who invented the 3D puzzle is named Paul Gallant, and I'm sure that he made a lot of money off of that. I did not. There are more famous Paul Gallants than me. I think there also is an addiction specialist named Paul Gallant because if you go to paulgallant.com, if I'm not mistaken, it's an addiction website. Is that something that I should perhaps read and, I don't know, take into account into my own personal life? I don't know. Uh, Fitness Jess M reviewed. Thanks for bringing Danny on. Felt like old times when we had a real morning show in Seattle. No comment on that little sentence right there, but I definitely miss Danny. It was great to catch up with him. Um, And look, I... I, I wish Salk and, and more of the best. I really do. I, I hope that that show does well. <laughs> There's so many people in that building where, you know, what happens there depends on what they do. So I got no hard feelings. I said it earlier in this podcast. I really don't. Be nice to them. Uh, what else do we have here? Oh, uh, no open relationships. That is from Ben. Um, ben put that in there in the comments in uh, late October. Um Sorry, I'm in an open relationship. You can't, you can't shame me for that. You can't judge me for that, okay? The Mariners and Astros are my lovers. And this is a monogamous open relationship. Like, you guys can't like other people. I can like them, though. I can't believe someone tried to put to pitch that to me on a first date. Anyway, uh, what else do we have here? Oh, you can subscribe to the Galantes podcast also on Google Podcasts. You can get to it on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash Paul Gallant. It's on SoundCloud. It is on Stitcher. It is on, I think I said all the podcast apps, didn't I? Did I? I think I did. It's also, as I said, on YouTube. And if you leave a YouTube comment, we will read those as well. This is what I'm saying is I have way too many tabs open. I'm one of those psychos who opens like 75 tabs. I can't find the one with a couple of questions that were asked on the latest episode of the Gallant Says Podcast. Oh my God, where are the comments? I can't find the comments. Ah! Uh, Supersonic asked this question. I'm curious what you think the Seahawks running room will look like next year. Do we need to draft another running back? What's going to happen with Carson and Penny? Look, Carson gets hurt too much, and I think that they are going to probably cut their losses. Um, The contract that Chris Carson signed is not a very big one. It is a bargain and a half, especially compared to some of the other running back contracts that you've seen out there. I would be surprise if they don't draft the running back, but the problem is where do you get the running back? Is that running back going to be impactful right away? I mean, you got DJ Dallas in the middle of the draft. What's that done for you? Travis Homer, you get at the back of the draft. What's that done for you? Alex Collins definitely has, I think, some extra potential, but Rashad Penny, he's gone. It's not a great running back room 
right now with Chris Carson injured. Uh, that is for sure. Big thanks to everybody who tuned in again. We'll be back at it on Friday. Until then, so long, farewell, have yourselves a wonderful Tuesday.